Okay, this morning we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 2. As I was preparing this past week and thinking about Mother's Day, the next topic in Revelation is the Great War of Armageddon. And I thought, well, that might be appropriate for Mother's Day because it seems like mothers are always in a battle. I think it was my father that suggested the theme song for mothers should be Sound the Battle Cry because they're always in the battle. But we're not going to go there today. Uh, We're going to look at a mother's prayer of praise to God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we have Hannah, um, after God answers her prayer, the prayer that she gives back to God in praise to him. Now, hopefully you're familiar with the story of Hannah. Hannah was married to a man named Elkanah. He had another wife, Penina. He was a very godly man. But Penina had several children. Hannah had none. And so she was very, very disappointed, depressed. And the Bible says bitter in spirit about that. Not bitterness toward God, because the Bible says that she understood that God closed her womb. But she wanted children very, very badly. And so she continued to plead to God, weeping through that. Now, on top of that, Penina mocked her because she had no children. And so every time they were together, it was a constant attack and criticism. And, oh, there must be something wrong with you, or God doesn't love you, or whatever. Because she had no children. So this is the life that Hannah endured for many, many years, being married to Elkanah. And Elkanah came to her and said, you have me as your husband, isn't that enough? I love you more than anything. And he showed that love. He was a very devoted husband. But for an Israelite woman not to have children, it was almost considered a curse because that was a blessing from God for them to have and bear children and train them up and to have a legacy to follow after their father's footsteps and to continue the family testimony of faithfulness to God and Hannah had none. And so Hannah, we as we know, prayed to God over and over. And one year as she went to the temple, she was praying, not out loud, in spirit, just fervently weeping and praying. And remember, Eli the priest came up and thought she was drunk, and she said, no, you misunderstand me. It's the bitterness of my spirit because God has not given me children. And, and Eli said, go your way, God's heard your prayer. And that year, God gave her a child, and we know his name to be Samuel. And she told the Lord that if, he, if, if God would give her a son, that he would, she would give him back to the Lord to serve him for his entire life. And we know, if you know the story of Samuel, Samuel was a prophet given by God to Hannah who was given back to the Lord. And at three years old, roughly, he was taken back to the tabernacle to work with Eli the priest and the other priests in serving God in that way. And that's chapter 1. Chapter 2 is Hannah's prayer the day that she takes Eli to live with the priest for the rest of his life apart from her. Now, she gets to see him once a year. But you think as a mother longing for a son, that was the greatest desire of her heart apart from her love for God. And that's what we see here in this prayer of praise from a mother. So we're going to read together the first part of chapter 2, Hannah 
prayer of praise to God after God gives her this child and she takes him back to be dedicated to the Lord. Verse 1 in chapter 2 says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord, mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over my enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. They that were full have hired themselves out for bread, and they that were hungry ceased, so that the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and lifteth, lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes, and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength shall no man prevail." The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Let's take a minute and pray before our message this morning. Our Lord, again, as we come before you and before your word, we need your help in understanding these things that you've given us to teach us. Lord, we need your spirit to guide us through these lessons today and through this passage. And so we submit ourselves and humble ourselves before you, that you might do your work. We want your name and your truth to be proclaimed today. And so, Lord, help us to give attention to what you have for us. And Lord, now as just a human being, Lord, I need your help. I'm just a vessel of clay that's weak in my own strength, but I need your strength and your spirit, so please fill me with your spirit, that what you are able to proclaim through me today might be challenging to us, might give us understanding about your priorities, about your truth. And Lord, may we be blessed by it. And so we thank you for this time and for your word. May you use it now for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, the beginning of chapter 2 here is Hannah's prayer of praise to God. And what we see, I'm not going to give you a grand expositional uh, sermon on all of the different elements, but I want to show you some things that I think will encourage you and challenge you. But what we see here in this prayer, after she takes Samuel back to serve the Lord and leaves him there in Jerusalem, or in Shiloh at this point, is that her prayer is totally in contrast with the prayer that she prayed previously in chapter 1. If you go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 10, it says, it doesn't give us the text of her prayer, but it says here, she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. So you can see the attitude that she's praying to the Lord for a child in chapter 1. What we have in chapter 2 is completely different. 
It still focuses on God. But look at the first phrase in verse 1. It says, Hannah prayed and said, what? My heart rejoices in the Lord. So this is a prayer of rejoicing. It's a prayer of praise to God and rejoicing in what God has done. And through the prayer, we not only see it's not just about what God has done, but it's about who God is. So this woman who was in such turmoil and anguish for many years now, her prayers have completely changed, at least from our perspective. And in this prayer, it's a prayer of joy because the Lord heard her. But it's also a prayer of joy, not just because he gave her a son, but because she is able now to fulfill her promise to God to return that son to the Lord. As I said, it was considered a curse for a married woman in Israel to be barren and have no children. And so to have Samuel now as a son, even though he's not going to be living with her most of, her, most of his life, is a blessing for her. Psalm chapter 127, verse 3 says, Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. She understood that children are a blessing from God. It's a mark of God's grace in a woman's life. And so as she brings Samuel back to the Lord, she's blessing God for this blessing that he brought into her life. And it's not just that God had given her a son. It's also that God had given her victory over the attacks of her enemy. Remember I mentioned Penina, Elkanah's other wife, continually attacked and criticized and made fun of her because of her, her barrenness. And now she has victory over that because God has heard her prayer. She now has a child. But it was also that God had proven himself faithful in lifting up the humble and setting down the low, or setting down the proud. Uh, Elkanah's wife, Penina, was the proud one, exalting herself because she had several children, mocking Hannah because she had none, and now God has exalted Hannah. And she mentions that in her prayer. But she also talks how God would continue to show his care to her and to others, to those who are faithful, and to do, show deliverance, to give deliverance to those who loved him. And so we have this prayer, and I'm not going to give you again all the expositional elements, but it's kind of broken down into four sections. And I want you to see these four sections first of all. At the beginning, she praises the Lord for his salvation, okay? And we read that in verses 1 and 2. In the second part, and this is the bulk of her prayer, she talks about how the Lord humbles those who are proud, and lifts up those who are humble. We see that in verses 3 through 8. And at the end of verse 8, into verse 9, Hannah affirms the Lord's faithfulness and his care for those whom he loves and who love him. So that's the third section. And then the prayer closes with this final section, which is interesting, where Hannah foresees the judgment of God upon sinners and the establishment of his Messiah as eternal king. Now, that brings us right into Revelation, where we are here just the past few weeks. Okay, Christ's second coming. That's what she's praying here at the end of her, her prayer. But through the much of her prayer and the content of her prayer, she's, this is not original to her. Now, the words are original. The context is original. But the prayer structure and what she includes in this prayer is not original. I want to take a few minutes. I want to show you something that occurs throughout the Bible, not just in the Old Testament. Okay, 
But this prayer follows the same pattern as the prayer of Miriam when the Israelites come through the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 15 and God destroys their enemies. The prayer of David after Saul finally is killed in battle. And then David, as king, goes and defeats the Philistines, which are the arch enemies of Israel at this point. And he prays this prayer in 2 Samuel 22 of praise to God, very similar to this. And then the Song of Mary, when she is given the announcement that she will be the mother of the Messiah. And we call it the Magnificat, but it's the prayer of praise of Mary to the Lord. And so all four of these prayers have a very similar structure and similar elements, and I just want to point them out very quickly. Again, as I said, the first part is the prayer of salvation, and Hannah prays, My heart rejoices in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth is enlarged over mine enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. A prayer of salvation. Miriam says the same thing, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. David He says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, the God of my rock, and him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower, my refuge, my savior. Okay, and even Mary prays, my soul doth magnify the Lord, my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my savior, for he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. Behold, from henceforth shall all generations call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done me great things, and holy is his name. So we see all of these prayers opening with this praise to God because of his salvation for his people. Okay? All the contexts were different, but the prayer is the same. Secondly, they praise God for the humbling of the proud. This is an, a reoccurring theme all throughout the prayers of the Old Testament. Hannah, I'm just, I'm just going to read a part of it. Talk no more exceedingly proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. And she continues for several verses talking about how the Lord raises up the poor and he sets down the mighty. Okay, so it's God's um, judgment, if you will, over the proud in bringing them down and in raising up the, the, the humble. Miriam prays the same thing. In the greatness of thine excellency, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sentest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. David's prayer after the Philistine battle and the afflicted people, thou wilt save, but thine eyes are upon the haughty that thou mayest bring them down. And then Mary's uh, prayer in in, uh, Luke chapter 1, she prays, He has showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. So we have first salvation, second, that God will humble those who are proud. And then the third part, praise for the provision of God and for for, for his care over those he loves. Hannah says, he raises up the poor out of the dust. He lifts up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes, to make them inherit the throne of God. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints. So God's care is perfectly and very plainly made known in her prayer. Miriam prays, Thou in thy mercy hast led forth thy people, which hast, thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in strength unto thy holy habitation. 
Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, O Lord, which thy hands have established. So Miriam's prayer talks about God's care and God's guidance. David prays, with the merciful thou wilt show thyself merciful, with the upright man thou wilt show thyself upright, with the pure thou wilt show thyself pure, with the froward thou wilt show thyself unsavory, and the afflicted people thou wilt save. Again, the statement of God's care. And then Mary, in, in her jubilate to the Lord, her magnificat, he hath filled the hungry with good things, the rich he hath sent empty away, he hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. So again, all of these prayers have the same patterns. First, salvation from God. Second, he will humble those who are proud. Third, he will provide and care for his own people. And then he finishes this praise of God's judgment for sin in the world and the mention of the eternal reign of the Messiah. Every single one of them has that element. Hannah says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven he shall thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. That almost sounds like it comes from Revelation. Mary, I'm sorry, Hannah goes on, and he shall give strength unto his king, that's Jesus Christ, and exalt the horn of his anointed. Miriam prays, thy right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed the enemy in pieces. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. That's the millennial kingdom. So even back in Miriam's day, they were looking forward to the coming of Christ. David prays, Thou hast enlarged my steps so that my feet did not slip. I pursued mine enemies and destroyed them and turned not again until I consumed them. He goes on for several verses, and he says, Therefore I will give thanks unto thee, O Lord, among the heathen. I will sing praises to thy name. He is the tower of salvation for his king. Not talking just about David here, but this is David's successor, who would be Jesus Christ. And he says, and he showeth mercy to his anointed unto David and to his seed, that is Jesus Christ, forevermore. And then Mary as well. He hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. The promise that God would send a Messiah. And so those four elements reoccur through all of these prayers, including this one of Hannah as she praises God for what he's done. Now, through all of what I've just read from Miriam, and as we look through this prayer in the first 10 verses of chapter 2, what's missing? There is no mention of a son here. There's no mention of Samuel. She's not praising God and saying over and over, thank you, God, for this son. Thank you, God, for giving me a child. Thank you, God, because you have fulfilled my life through giving me a son. It's not mentioned once. Her prayer of praise to God is because of who God is. And God does care about us, and God did give her an answer to her prayer and provided her a son, but in her prayer of praise, it's not about what she received. It's all praise to God to acknowledge him for who he is. And so we see this pattern of prayer from this mother and then throughout Scripture, that it really just focuses on the Lord. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying specific thanksgiving to God for certain things he does for us. We should. But how often do we just pray and praise God for who he is? 
Why do we have to inject ourselves into every prayer that we pray to him? Let me give you three lessons, and I'm not going to take a lot of time, but I want, I'm, not, I'm going to give you three lessons that I see in Hannah's prayer here. Okay? And it really just focuses on what we've talked about. Praise to God for who God is. First lesson, she rejoices in the Lord. That's verse 1. I already mentioned that. She rejoices in the Lord, not rejoices in her son, not rejoices in the Lord's promises, but rejoices in the Lord himself. Now, how often do we just rejoice that God is God, that he's in control of everything, that he is the Lord of lords and king of kings? I mean, that is the point that gives us the substance to rejoice. If God wasn't in heaven and there was no Jesus Christ, Paul says we'd be of all men most miserable. There's no joy. But our joy is found in the Lord. Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. So how many of us, not just in our prayers, but in our regular lives, live focused on the joy of the Lord? Hannah starts her prayer and she says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. Mine horn or my strength is what she's saying is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. No mention of a son. It's just all about God. Hannah shows her depth of commitment and love to God here in her prayer. And if we really look at what she's praying, I think it will humble us. Because on the very day that she makes the greatest sacrifice of her life, giving back to God the very son that God gave to her, and at this point, scholars think he was barely three years old. Okay? So just able to walk and talk a little bit. And here, he, here she is presenting him at the house of God to serve the Lord for the rest of his life. She promised that if God gave her a son, she would give him back to the Lord all the days of his life. And so her greatest desire is shown in her prayer. It wasn't to receive a son. It was to receive a son that she could give back to God. Giving God the glory, passing that blessing, not for herself, but giving God the blessing through giving that blessing back to God. Her greatest desire was not to have a son so that she could feel fulfilled and have a purpose in life. Her greatest desire was not to have a son so that she could finally quiet Penina and all the comments that were being made. Her greatest desire was being, was from the Lord, was being able to give him back to the Lord, that son that she, that he gave to her in love and worship because her greatest love, her greatest joy was found in God, not in that son. So even on the day that she gave him back to the Lord and then only saw him maybe once a year after that, she rejoices in the Lord. And so the entire prayer of praise, she offers not a single word about what she had given up. There's nothing here about her sacrificing before God and going to God and saying, look what I've done, look what I've given to you, don't I deserve something? But how often is that the attitude that we pray with? Here she focuses on God's holiness, his strength, his salvation, his deliverance, his sovereignty, even his judgment. And she says, I rejoice in the Lord. So on the most difficult day of her life, she offers back to the Lord the very thing 
that was the object of her prayer, but it's her desire was to be able to offer him back to God. Now, we pray for lots of things in our lives. We pray for healing. We pray for health. We pray for provision and protection from God. But is our purpose in praying for those things so that we can offer ourselves back to God, or is it so that we can have all the stuff we want and have life the way we want it? See, Hannah's a great example for us in her prayer. She gave back to God the greatest gift that God gave to her. And so it should be for us. And even in the most difficult situations of our life, and we may have sacrificed greatly for God. I'm not saying we're not sacrificing for God. I'm saying what is our attitude? But even in those most difficult situations of our life, when we have nothing else really even to rejoice in, can we rejoice in the Lord? Is that how we live as believers? We're told over and over in, in Scripture to rejoice in the Lord. Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, be righteous, and shout for, all, for, shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. There's a command given to us. Psalm 97, rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Not the remembrance of all the things he did for us, but because of his holiness. Because if we didn't have a perfect God, we would be in trouble. Psalm 118.24, this is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Why? Because the sun's shining, because the flowers are out, because things are going well, because our car didn't break down, right? There's nothing wrong in our lives. No, it says, this is the day the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it because the Lord made this day. And every day that God gives you is a new day to rejoice in the Lord because he gave you another day to rejoice in him. That's what the verse is telling us. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garment of salvation. Now, obviously, we should praise God for his salvation for us. But what about his salvation for others? How much do we rejoice in that? And does it show in how we live our lives and be a testimony to others? Matthew chapter 5, these are Jesus' words. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. What, is his, what are his next words? Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Jesus said, when you suffer, when you're persecuted, when you're mocked, when you're reviled for being a believer, rejoice. 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Rejoice in trials. Why? Because it shows that our strength is only found in Christ. If we suffer for his name, then we have the fellowship of suffering in Christ that Paul was desiring. And so we should rejoice even in our suffering. And so every day is a day to rejoice in the Lord no matter what happens because he's still God. He hasn't forgotten us. Our prayer should start with and should be characterized rejoicing in who we're praying to. 
Second lesson, she trusts in God's strength and sovereignty to provide for her to take care of the circumstances of her life. Now, if I asked you, yeah, is that what you believe? Probably every believer would say, of course, you know, we trust God to take care of us. Yeah, God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. But do we live that way? Do we pray that way? Okay, how often, and I've asked this before, and because I'm guilty, how often do we sit down and we have an earnest prayer to God? Somebody needs healing, some provision that is necessary at that moment. When we pray to God and say, God, please do this. And we pray and then we step back from our prayer and go, well, it's probably not going to happen. That's not praying in faith. He's an almighty God. Here, Hannah trusts God's strength, his sovereignty. And she says, God will do this. He will provide for his people. He will control everything on earth. Look at the word she uses in verses 6 through 8. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. Wouldn't you think it would be the other way around? First he makes us alive, then he kills us. But she says he killeth first, and then he's made alive. And we just studied that this morning in Sunday school, how this body really isn't the the ultimate goal. This isn't the substance that we seek. It's just a coat, in essence, that we wear while we're on the earth over our soul until our soul is freed from this corrupt body so that we can fully rejoice in God. He killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. That's the rapture. That's the second coming of Christ. Then she says, he maketh the poor and maketh rich. I'm not going to ask you how many of you are poor and how many of you are rich. Okay? But that situation that God has put you in, it is because God has put you there. It is not because you go and work hard and earn your money. It is because God has given you the strength and opportunity to work so that he can bless you through that job. And if you don't have much money, that is the situation that God has given you that he's in control of because there's lessons and things that he wants you to understand being in that position. I've been there. I understand. He makes poor, he makes rich, he brings low and lifteth up. He raises the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of his glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world over upon them. So over and over, Hannah's talking about how God is intimately involved not only in providing and protecting, but in controlling not just our lives, but everything in the world. Now, if you read a paper or listen to the news today, you think, how could God be in control of that? Well, he is. Because as we read through Revelation, we know what's coming. And so he's putting the chess pieces in place in our world right now for all of that to be ready to happen as soon as Christ comes back. But I want you to think about God's control of your lives. Every success and every failure is under his control and part of his plan. Every dollar that you make comes as a result of God's provision. Every dollar lost is a part of his provision and intervention as well. Whether you live in a garbage heap or whether you live in a mansion, you're still under the control and power of God's plan. He doesn't fail. And he can change your circumstances in a moment. It says he can lift up the poor and set them before princes. 
Now, we may not all experience that, but God can. And if that's his plan for your life, he will. And whether you stand before mighty men or whether you sit at home with seemingly little influence over anybody, your circumstances are still controlled by God. Now, I know there's people that believe that, oh, God really doesn't have control. It's just a bunch of people's choices. They're making their own choices. Yes, that's true. But see, that's what makes God even more sovereign. Because he doesn't control us like robots making us do everything that we do. He gives us that opportunity to make those choices, to serve him or not serve him. But then he's still in control of the outcome. He can even use our sin to redirect us down the right path. Just think, he used the greatest sin of mankind in killing Jesus Christ to provide the greatest gift that was ever offered. At the end of verse 8, she talks about the pillars of the earth belonging to God. Now, when I was in science, I don't think we studied about the pillars of the earth that it sits on as it hangs in space. Okay, But she's using imagery here from what she understood. The earth has to be supported by something. It's supported by God. God laid the foundations of the earth. In Job 38, verse 4, God asked Job this question, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you? Psalm 104, verse 5, the psalmist said, said, talking about the Lord who laid the foundations of the earth, that it should not be removed forever. And then in Isaiah 51, the prophet is chiding the Israelites for rejecting and abandoning God. And he says, and you forget the Lord thy maker that has stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. Now, if God is the one who put the earth in its place and keeps it there, don't you think he's strong enough to take care of your little needs? And that's why, as we read this morning in Matthew, why do we worry about clothes and what we're going to eat, where we're going to live? God knows you have need of all these things. There's more important things for us to think about, like rejoicing in God. Because God's all-powerful and all-sovereign, you can be sure, just like Hannah was, that everything in your life is under his control, that everything in the world is is under his control, and you can trust him to do what's best. That's the second lesson. The third lesson is this. She lets God fight her battles and doesn't try to win them herself. Go to verse 3. She says, Talk no more exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. By him actions are weighed. God knows who your enemies are. God knows what their tactics are. God knows what they're trying to do to you. Here she's making a reference to Penina, although she doesn't name her. She just says, here's an enemy that was completely attacking me all the time, and God took care of it. Look at verse 9. She says, he will keep the feet of his saints. The wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. It doesn't matter the strength of the person that's coming against you. God is stronger. And so Hannah doesn't fight this battle against Penina to try to defend herself. She never lashes out and tries to get back at her. And even though year after year Penina's comments 
dig deeper and deeper into Hannah's soul and cause more and more hurt. Hannah never says a word that's recorded here. She never comes back at her, never tries to make to even the score here. And in verse 3, she says, God knows everything. He weighs the actions of people. God's the judge, not us. Jesus told us in Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. We're not the judge of other people. And so even if they're attacking me, I'm not their judge. So it's not my place to come after them or try to get even or seek revenge even. Because everything that we do, everything that everyone does, will be judged by God, either as faithfulness to him or as selfishness and pride. And God will take care of those things, whether they're leveled at us or someone else. And so no matter how bad the attacks against us, God can fight those battles better than we can. And God will provide a victory greater than anything that we could achieve for ourselves. I mean, that's all through Scripture we see that, and Hannah here repeats that. And so we don't need to fight those battles against ourselves, to for ourselves, to defend ourselves. God is going to do that for us, and he will do it much better than we could ever do. Verse 9 again, he will keep the feet of his saints. The wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. Now, it's this very principle of humility which drives me to believe that as, as, as a believer, an attitude of self-defense and self-preservation is wrong. Okay? Where in the Bible does it ever teach us to defend ourselves? Oh, someone mocked me. I've got to make sure he understands that's not right. Someone said something that's not true. I've got to go to the ends of the earth, to prove it's not true to everybody else and explain to them what the truth is. I mean, she's not talking about physical attacks. She's talking about verbal attacks. And and all of us have experienced this. But this idea of humility is totally opposite of the idea of self-defense. Now, I didn't say we shouldn't protect others. We are to stand up for others. In fact, Jesus said, what's the greatest friend? The greatest friend you could have is someone who will lay down his life for you, which Jesus did himself. But how often did Jesus defend himself? When they came to arrest him, did he fight? When they accused him wrongly, did he argue? There's no biblical reason which gives us the right to defend ourselves in a sense especially to harm others in the defense of ourselves. And Hannah, as well as others throughout Scripture, including Jesus himself, exemplify that principle of humility in letting God fight those battles for you. Because you're not here to preserve yourself or your own life. You're here to give up your life for the good of others and for the glory of God. Hannah exemplifies that. God can fight those battles much better than you can. And so instead of fighting back against the people that are attacking you, whether it be verbal or physical, where is your strength? It's in God. Hopefully, if our trust and our rejoicing is in God, then he will take care of those for us. Now, I've been there personally. 
When we were in Michigan for many years, from many people on several occasions, I had people who didn't agree with my teaching, who didn't agree with the way we raised our family. I mean, you name it, they, they found something wrong with us. And I've been accused of false teaching. I've been accused of covering up other people's sins for my own advantage. I was accused of leading women on and giving them false impressions. I was accused of, my, my wife was accused of feminizing me because I helped her in the kitchen. I mean, it goes on and on and on. I'm just giving you a sampling. And I realized very quickly that, especially as a pastor, but as a believer, if I spent all my time trying to track down people that had heard these lies and false accusations, I would waste my life doing nothing but trying to convince others that I wasn't what other people said. And you've heard that phrase, methinks thou dost protest too much. Okay, when you spend your life trying to tell other people what a good person you are, you're probably not a good person. So there's no reason for us to spend all our time trying to defend ourselves. God will do that for us. You know, and I I went through it. And very quickly, God helped me to learn, you know what? The focus should be on serving the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord, doing his business, keeping busy with the things he called me to. Forget about what other people have heard and what they think. Because if I continue to live for the Lord, then God will fight those battles for me. And he did. And I, had, I didn't have to say a word to anybody. I didn't have to convince anybody. Because eventually the people who were the false accusers were made known to others who had heard them because of their lack of integrity in their own lives, their unfaithfulness, their selfish motives. And all of a sudden the lies started to disappear. And I didn't have to say one word about it. God will fight those battles for you, folks. Hannah says that right here. So it's not about self-defense or self-preservation. That's the wrong attitude. Jesus said, deny yourself. If you're willing to lose your life, then you'll be the one who saves it. God's faithful. He will lift up the humble and take down the proud. And that's why James 4, 6 tells us, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's why I'm going to let God fight those battles that I can't win, and I'm going to continue to trust in his strength and wisdom as I try to serve him with my life and just rejoice in him. And I pray that that would be your focus as well, just like it was Hannah's. Now, in closing, this message was not specifically for mothers. Okay, it's Mother's Day. This is the prayer of a mother, but this is for all of us. Great principles for all of us. This praise and rejoicing comes from a mother who knew all too well what it meant to be depressed, to be oppressed, to be attacked, to be disappointed, to be persecuted, and seemingly forgotten by God. That's the context of Hannah's life. And yet, because her love was completely set on God throughout the hardest times of her life, we see what's in her heart right here. We're given this prayer of rejoicing to remind us of what our attitudes and our prayers should be in the hardest times of our lives. I'm not saying don't pray, God, please deliver me. But is it more about you or is it about the God that you're praying to? Remember, 
We looked at chapter 1, verse 10. Her prayer of bitterness is not recorded. We don't have the words of that. But we do have the words of her prayer of rejoicing and praise. And there's a reason for that, I believe. Because God doesn't want us to spend our lives praying to him in bitterness for all the things we didn't get and can't have. God wants us to spend our lives rejoicing in what we do have in him. Not just from him, but in him. Because if he is ours, then we have everything we need. And that is something to rejoice in and to praise him for. And so I pray that we can echo the praise of Hannah in our life as we learn to trust God's faithfulness. Nothing that she prayed was new to her. It was just the promises of God, what he told us about himself. And as we learn to be faithful in praising God throughout the good days and the bad days, whether we are in the company of friend or foe, and no matter what battles we are fighting at that moment, that we can rejoice in God. Because he is our God. He is our strong tower. We don't need anything else. And so may we rejoice in the Lord who brings us down to the grave and raises us up back again, looking in faith and hope to the day when that will be done ultimately when he comes to take us to heaven. And as the Apostle Paul reminds us in Philippians 4.4, while we're on this earth, then our life should be defined by this, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. That's Hannah's prayer of praise on the hardest day of her life. Hopefully it will be yours too. Let's pray. Father, thank you again that you love us. You have given us this example in, in just a simple woman, a simple mother, who had a desire not just for a son, but for something that she could give back to you with all her heart. Rejoicing in your blessing in, to her by giving that blessing back to you. And so, Lord, help us in our lives to see those blessings that you've given us, but to be willing to offer them back to you in praise and rejoicing. Because ultimately, all things are yours, all things belong to you, and we are yours as well. So help us to cling to you and not to anything else, to rejoice in you and not in anything else, knowing that you are God, our Savior. Thank you again for Jesus Christ, for the salvation that he's given us to make us one of your own. And we have that eternal promise that we can cling to until that day you call us home. So keep us faithful, we pray. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our closing